come back to people who are here this morning uh, for the first time uh, in the physical presence of church. Uh, we know people have been following us online. If you've been following us online, we're working our way through the book of Isaiah, picking out different passages and that, that hopefully will encourage us and challenge us and teach us in the uh, time that we have together. Uh, and, uh, and so this morning we're going to speak on Isaiah, uh, the joy. If you were here last Sunday, we finished in chapter 10 by talking about the anointing. And between chapters 10 and 24, Isaiah really speaks about the judgment uh, that is coming, uh, that really the, the problem was, and this is a problem with uh, civilization from the beginning since God created, is that uh, people are presented with a choice and God has given uh, Israel and Judah a choice and they've rejected that choice, have chosen to live their, their own way, but it has been made clear from uh, what's been said that there is a judgment to come because of that choice, because they choose to worship other gods, live other ways, and so uh, between chapters 10 and 24 really talks about this, but judgment and destruction are never really God's intention. Is, is hope. It's always hope and redemption. We know Isaiah speaks about the coming of the Messiah more than any other Old Testament writer because the Messiah speaks hope, as we've said. And in this chapter that we're looking at, which is Isaiah chapter 25, we're looking at this, the silence, moving from the silence of the shattered city to the joy of the feast where the Lord is host. Isaiah speaks of three times. He speaks of the first here and now. He tells us a story in the context of what's happening to God's people, Judah and Israel. So he's speaking in the here and now, but he also speaks of the, the coming of the Messiah, of which he speaks 700 years, prophesies 700 years into the future of the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ coming. Uh, and then, but he also talks about this. He talks about the second coming of Jesus as well. He, he talks about that as a future uh, thing for, for us as well to look forward to uh, really the temporary situation versus the ultimate situation we're not just about what we have now and where we are now as believers it says we have a hope it says that hope uh, will take us to heaven that hope if it doesn't take us to heaven will see us witness the second coming of Jesus Christ we have that hope as a people and so in Isaiah 25 we see this chapter the words come before you now uh, this is being written to those who have remained faithful to God uh, throughout the judgment. Uh, they're called the remnant, which is a small part of a group of people who have simply remained faithful uh, to God all the way through what has happened. And it opens up with, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth, for you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a place of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you, for you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud, 
the song of the terrible ones will be diminished. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees, and he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces, the rebuke of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For on this mountain the hand of the Lord will rest, and Moab shall be trampled down under him, as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. And he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim, and he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, down to the dust. As I said, this is a chapter of praise, a song by God's righteous through history, uh, those who have stayed faithful to God, uh, and the covenant, even though there has been this judgment. And so this chapter is a description of praise about who God is, what God has done, and what God will do. And it brings us really to the thought of worship this morning. And worship is never just a feeling, even if it can be an intense feeling at times, we're to worship God with a decision. Uh, that's what we're being taught here in this opening verse, that actually our worship is to be filled with thought and remembrance of God's great works, not just an emotional response. There's a danger that we've taught that uh, worship is just an emotional response depending on how we feel when we come into church. On a Sunday, that if we've fallen out with a wife, we don't feel like worshiping. If we've fallen out with the kids, we don't feel like worshiping. It's an emotional response. These verses teach us that these aren't to be an emotional response. They're a decision that we make. And Isaiah opens up with three things that really help us this morning and also the readers of the letter. The first thing that he does is this. He declares, my God. Now, I think this is a wonderful thought, really, because this invites the hand of personal relationship. We're not talking about a God. We're not talking about some God. We're talking about my God. We don't get more personal than relationship that we have with our God, the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ. And so this, this thought of my God, of that being so personal, not just to the readers that are here, but to us as well this morning, causes us to do th two things. The first one is this. It, it causes us to say, I will exalt you. Now, exalt something to means to raise it to lift it to elevate and for us as we relate it to where we are this morning is we're lifting it and elevating above the circumstances and everything that we face for the readers at the time in Isaiah 25 because they've been in the midst of this judgment and remained faithful to God they elevate and raise God up above all of that uh, and so it causes them to do the second thing which is I will praise you and praise simply is the offering of gratitude to God. We're thankful to God this morning. Reese has brought us the thought at the table this morning as we come of repetition. Why are we repeating this? Because we're thankful to God. Thank you, God, that, that you have saved us. But it causes us in our personal relationship to exalt God, to praise him. But these people are being drawn to this after the previous 14 chapters, but because God's been declaring judgment and passing judgment. 
And how do we fit it with all of that? Because often we don't like to talk about the judgment of God. It often makes us feel uncomfortable that, that God would be a God of judgment. But he is. But Isaiah does something very interesting. Because he doesn't see it as a blot on the character of God. He just simply sees it as a natural outworking of it. And I'm going to try uh, and explain it. Somebody said this. He says, you can worship God in the midst of judgment because you can have confidence in his fairness. God is absolutely, ultimately fair in everything that he does, everything he says, uh, the way that he treats people, everything. He says you can have that confidence in his fairness, that there's no favorites, there's no preference with God. It's simply that you can worship him, him in, in not just in the midst of the judgment, but in the midst of every circumstance, simply because you can have confidence in his fairness, that God always does what he says he was going to do. He says often people get surprised because the Bible, often when you read it in places from beginning to end, it's a book of warning. It warns the people, doesn't it? The problem here with Israel and Judah that Isaiah was speaking about is simply, listen, God has given you the choice. He said to you, he said, follow me. If you follow these other gods and live for these other people and choose to do these other things, you will have to accept the consequences of your decision. And then we get surprised sometimes when the wrong choices are made that there are consequences to those wrong choices. But God is simply saying, well, you can be confident in my fairness that I will do exactly what I said I would do. And we see this here, that God's judgment simply proves four things. The first one is this, is perfect faithfulness. In Genesis 2 verse 17, he tells Adam and Eve, he says, you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. There's the choice. He says they have the choice. He says we cannot complain and say we don't have the choice. The one thing we do have is the choice. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. God is perfectly faithful in all the decisions that he has to make, not only in his love, but in his judgment as well. And he's saying this to the people. Remember the two promises I said to you at the start of this, uh, the, 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 at the start of this series, which something God always held on to, no matter how disobedient, that his people were, no matter how unkind and harsh and rebellious his people were, God always simply said to them, he says, listen, you are my people and I am your God. And, and no matter how bad they were, no matter how rebellious they were, there was that declaration that was still uh, spoken over them, that, that God had declared over them, but it comes with a cost. And the second thing we see is God's perfect control. He says in Titus 1 verse 2, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. The thought that before the foundation of the world, God had crafted a perfect plan is too much for our finite minds. We, we cannot possibly understand it or even begin to try and explain it sometimes. But we just have to trust God sometimes with that thought but because it says it in Scripture that before the foundation of the world, God was not caught out by anything. It wasn't in a sense that the illustration, if you've ever seen those people that spin the plates on the, the sticks and they're moving from this plate to this plate to this plate to try and keep all the plates spinning. Some people say, well, that's a, that's a picture of God. He said, that's not a picture of God at all. God is in perfect control. 
He's absolutely perfect control of everything that has happened and will happen. And that's why we can trust his judgment. And the third thing we see is this. In not only entrusting his judgment, we see that it's his perfect love. Because there, there was a problem. It was our fault. And he actually provided the solution to it. He says he sent his son to be the, 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 almost the, the remedy, the solution, the answer, whatever word you want to use. He said he sent it, in it because the world had to be judged. God said, well, I sent my son, Jesus. He says, that judgment that should have been mine and yours doesn't belong to us. It, Jesus came and he took it. And so we see this, that with the entrance of sin came the penalty of sin. Had we just stopped there, that's terrible news. We're getting what we deserve. We're getting the consequences of all the things that you and I have done wrong. But it doesn't stop there. It says, with the entrance of sin came the penalty of sin, but also the one who would be the payment for sin. And so we see God's judgment coming through there in his perfect love for each and every one of us, all of us that, that are here. And the fourth thing we see is this, is his perfect righteousness. And that simply means that God will always do what's right. The righteous, to be righteous in the thought of thinking of God is that he'll just always do what's right. He says we may not always get an explanation in why God does some of the things that he does and some of the things that happen we will look at and say, why is that happening to me? What's going on here? But one thing we can trust in is in his perfect righteousness. God will always do what's right and you know it says here in the early verses of the chapter we read that strong people will glorify you and terrible nations will fear you and it is simply this that that, that God created beings who would have the chance to worship but this is the choice that each and every one of us have and it's a choice that's been there from the beginning of time do you worship the creator or do you worship the created and you see most people's problems lie in the fact that they begin to worship that which has been created rather than he who is the creator that's where our problems stem from isn't it that actually we look at something and think I need this in my life this will answer to me the purpose and reason why we live and they're the created things and the choice is presented to the people then and to us today do we worship him who is creator or him who is created because God has been a strength a battle, sorry, strength, a refuge, and a sage. So seeing this in, in this in this passage, we see the picture Isaiah gives us as we move on is one of all nations turned to God in worship, a great banquet for all the peoples, the removal of all suffering and grief and reproach from the nations who have become his people, and the final putting away of death forever. Isaiah mentions a feast. You know, feast festivals and banquets they abound in the Bible. Meals represented community of the closest kind. A king would often hold a feast for the people to make some pronouncement. In Exodus 24, when the Mosaic Covenant was celebrated in a meal, the, the elders, uh, but this is more here. This is the feast that God is going to have for his people in the end. Uh, the trumpet is an invitation to all people. When you hear that, da, 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 that was a trumpet, by the way. That was uh, <laughs> When you hear that, it's going to be a pronouncement. There's going to be uh, uh, some news coming. And this is the case here because he begins to talk about all peoples, 
ethnic groups, all nations, political entities, and all faces, his people. But it tells us that God's going to do two things. The first thing is this, when he holds a feast, is the first act of the Lord is provision. But he talks about this, he says, the rich food and the finest of wines, and compared simply to maybe just bread and water, What's the difference where the rich foods and the fine wines are are spoken about here? That is the abundance that God wants to bless his people with. Bread and water is just sustenance, isn't it? He says, we take bread and water if we have to take it, if there's nothing else on offer. But wait, it talks about the feast here. And I had this picture here. And I love a feast. We all love a feast. We all love an all-you-can-eat buffet, don't we? So I once said challenge isn't it <laughs> you know and you can't but this picture here is this you go out for dinner you read the menu it says steak or ribs or chicken or burger and you don't know what to pick and you think to yourself well I can only pick one in the feast here you can pick it all it's all yours and it says that thought of just the finest of food that is there and for those that are drinking the, the wine it says be careful here. It's not your cheap little stuff. It's the proper stuff. And it says, what God blessing his people with, in a sense here, with this feast of gathering the people. Here. Because in a sense, and you, though I'll say this, and you'll be like, oh, I'm not sure I understand, but this, uh, God is almost trying to understand, why would the people choose their own way when I'm offering this? When I'm offering the finest of food and the best of wines and, and all this food that's spread out on there and it would be like eating at a feast and you, you, would, you would never be full but you would always be satisfied. You would never count the calories. You would never worry about fitting into the jeans tomorrow. It would be that sort of feast. And then the desserts would come and if you've ever been to the Ramor in Port Rush and you see the desserts all lined up there and you think to yourself, which one should I pick? He says, you can pick them all, take them all, with ice cream and strawberry sauce on. A lot. That's a blessing of God. I'm speaking in your language. You understand me, don't you? He says, that's a blessing of God. That's a provision that he's offering. But it comes and the second act we see is destruction. And, and this, because it tells us that God will take away. It says the covering cast and the veil is removed. And I have the time really to go into all of this today. But Paul quotes verse 8 in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, he will swallow up death forever. That's a purpose of God in the end, to take death away forever. John quotes it in Revelation 21.4. He says, tomorrow as we come and do the funeral, we read this verse because we read it for believers at every funeral. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is what God will do. And this is not a promise just to the readers. This is our promise today because Jesus is our saviour with heaven to look forward to because it says that he will destroy, he will swallow up death to make it disappear utterly. God will dry the tears of his people and finally, it says, God will remove the rebuke. And we're like, well, what's that? And it's that disgrace of disobedience. When they made the wrong choices and they feel guilty about it, God removes that disgrace. Uh, and, I, and I thought of this, and this is so true, that, that God being God, he, he, he cannot forget anything. He cannot forget anything. 
but he chooses not to remember. He chooses not to remember. That's the removal of that when he removes that disgrace of the rebuke and stuff. That simply we're here at this point and that's the promise. But see, the Old Testament meaning of, of being saved is this. Is we see that he rescued his people. He made them his own. He restored them to his favour. He brought them under his rule and he cares for them. And we could break down each one of those into a, a sermon in itself, but we don't have time. But that's the Old Testament meaning of being saved. And all the way through Isaiah, we, we've said this. We've said this. We've said what we see in part in the old, we see in full in Christ. What we see in part in the old, we see full in Christ. What has Christ Jesus done for you and me? He's rescued us. He's made us his own. He restores us to his favor. He's brought us under his rule and he cares for us. We see that in part in what Isaiah says to, his people, to the people here. But we live it in full today, don't we? We live it in full today in Christ. And we come to the final verses and because it's all about the choices again. And, and Isaiah uses the nation of Moab. And Moab was known, represented for their pride. They wanted to be a nation that didn't want to believe in any God or worship God. So they decided they would live their own way. They would do all of that. They would make their own choices. And they use the illustration of a swimmer. And a, a swimmer can take no assistance from anybody. If you swim, you're just in and you your hands. That's me swimming, by the way. But that's his swimming. And it's just swim. But he uses this illustration. And hold on to the, the, the graphic detail here. Because he speaks of the refuse heap. And he says he's, he's not swimming in water. They're swimming in liquid manure. And that's what the, the meaning of the phrase here is. The refuse heap. They're actually comparing living under the hand of the Lord, which is the presence of God and the provision of God, those other nations would choose to live under the feet of God, which would be trampled down like a swimmer swimming in manure. That's the, that's the comparison. That's how bad the comparison is. These people want to live for themselves by their own choices, and God is simply declaring and said, but why do you want to live that way? Why is it better to live that way than the way that God has for them and I opened up this morning uh, with this verse and it's so true that the people declared this oh Lord you are my God I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness you've done marvelous things planned long ago you know we worship God regardless of the circumstances the situations that we face I don't know what your life is like as you come in here this morning, people have struggled and battled different things, not just because of lockdown, because of what's been going on, but there is a truth here that written so many thousands of years ago, still true today. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise you. And in a minute, the team are going to come and finish with a song this morning. And I suppose it's a modern rewording of these verses because the song is called Waymaker. And as we sing the chorus of it, we understand this, that God is a way maker because he makes a way. God, excuse me, <laughs> God is a miracle worker because he works miracles. God is a promise keeper because he keeps his promise. God is a light in the darkness because he really does light up the dark. Who is he? He says, he's my God, that is who he is. 
And I thought, what a tremendous thought this morning as we come to finish, that actually in all of the circumstances and everything else that we face, we can still hold on to these words. The God, you are my God. I will praise you and exalt you above anything and everything, all the circumstances and situations and problems that I have at the moment. God, I lift you above that. And it says, it's not an easy thing to do, but it can be done. These people did it in the midst of judgment, still declared that God was their God, and he was going to praise them and elevate them. And Isaiah encourages them to do that then, and us to do that this morning. Let us close in prayer. Father God, we come before you this morning. Father, your word challenges us and teaches us this morning, Lord. Most importantly, that God, you are not just some God or their God, that you are my God. And Father God, as we come and sing this final song, Father God, we make that declaration that God, that not only are you our God, but we will praise you and we will elevate you in this place this morning above any health issues, Father God, above any financial issues, Father God, above any relationship issues, Father God, above anything that we are facing as we leave church today, Father God, you are our God and we will praise and exalt you this morning. And Father God, whatever we have to do to get back to that place Father God we come and we worship you this morning because we know that is where the true joy is not in our emotional response Father God but in our choice this morning to simply say God will you make a way God will you work a miracle God would you be our promise today God would you be a light in the darkness God would you do that for us this day in Jesus name Amen